Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back, everyone. This is Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. And we're here to talk about Revelation this week. This is a topic that came up in a phone call from you, Riley that uh, I was excited to talk about too. I still am. It's something where we've had examples in the history of the church where revelation has, new revelation has abrogated former revelation, and there are different ways to think about and understand this. So I think it's really worth talking about that and just the idea of getting to know better how it works and how to make it work, I guess, in our own lives. Yeah, I like that. I mean, we are... We always say this, we're not experts, but I, I, some of the practices that we've incorporated over the last couple of years have, I think, opened our eyes and minds uh, to the idea of receiving personal revelation in new ways, so I think that's valid. And then there's the idea of understanding what prophecy really is. I mean, prophetology is a, a really fancy word, but we're just talking about here how prophecy works, prophecy and yeah. revelation, right? Yeah, we'll get into some of that. So what... What brought this up for you, Riley? Well, I had my boss in town for a few days. He comes once a year and spends some time with me. And um, we we were going to, he's a, he's a Jewish man. He was born in uh, Israel, and that's the tradition he comes from, his Jewish tradition. And um, we were at dinner one night, and, you know, they were full capacity at this restaurant, and they asked us if we wanted to sit at the bar. And I said, yeah, that's fine. So we sat at the bar uh, while we were waiting for a permanent table, and... Uh, he asks me, you know, are, are are you okay with me ordering a drink? Um, and I said, absolutely, of course, you know, no no issue whatsoever with that. And so obviously he was tuned into the fact that I'm, you know, a member of the LDS Church and um, that we have dietary restrictions that include not drinking alcohol. I'm not sure why he thought I would, you know, object to him drinking, but nevertheless there was that. And then later on that same day, um, I'm sorry, the next day I was taking him down to the airport. And he was drinking his coffee and he kind of asked a similar question. He's like, do, do Mormons object to caffeine? And I was like, well, I guess, I guess it depends on who you ask and when. Cause if you ask 50 years ago, you'd probably get a different answer from 90% of Mormons. And you ask today, probably 90% the other direction. So things have obviously changed. And he said, is there a mechanism for change within your church to revelations? And to me, I mean, as obvious as that is, we, we are believers in continuous revelation, um, not only at a personal level, but an institutional level as well. And so we know that things can change. And we always give this, uh, I guess you could call it a doctrinal preference or precedence to the living prophet. That's kind of a doctrinal thing for us. And so, yes, we know that revelation can change. And so that that kind of prompted some thoughts in me, um, thoughts that maybe I should have had a while ago and may sound obvious to, to listeners or to you, Chris, but 
for some reason, I went down this thought process a little bit and I was thinking, yes, revelation is a change agent within the church, not just at the institutional level, but also at the personal level. And so my answer to him, of course, was, yeah, we can, things can change. Sure. Um, when the word of wisdom was first received, which is what the topic of this question he asked me was about anyway, we know that, you know, drinking uh, wine of your own make was written into that health code right there in section 89. And, and then that changed, you know, during the, during the prohibition, for instance, um, in the United States. So anyway, that's what prompted the topic and what got me thinking about kind of the larger topic of revelation, how it's received and how it can change, putting ourselves in revelatory spaces, all those things. So that's where, that's where that came from. Well, how about if we bring up a few more examples, Riley, and then sort of, you know, to problematize this enough a little bit to be able to talk about it and think about how this works. Or how it might work. I I always like doing that. As a Sunday school teacher, I always try to introduce complexity into my lessons so it gets people thinking right away. And so, yeah, let's do that. Let's introduce some complexity into what might be a very simplistic uh, view of Revelation for maybe some of our audience or others. Yeah. What what are some examples? Yeah, I can't help but do that too. As a philosopher and teaching philosophy, that was my job. Well, there's no discussion like a complex discussion. When they're simple, they're boring. (laughs) Let's do it. So what are some examples? Okay, so we brought up Word of Wisdom, um, a more recent one. So President Nelson has been this uh, a major change agent within the church. He's very open about, you know, receiving lots of revelations. He has his, as his wife Wendy says, his, his yellow notebook that he keeps by his bedside, and he writes down revelations as they come. And I read an interview last week where he was talking about how this happens for him. And he'll tell Wendy, it's happening, dear, you know, sit up in the middle of the night in bed. And she either leaves or stays, depending on what the spirit tells her to do. But nevertheless, <laughs> he's got this yellow notebook. And so he writes down the things that he receives from the Lord and or what at least what he deems to be from the Lord. These are revelations to him. And, and he sees them as being on behalf of the church in many cases. Of course, we don't know, you know, all of them, but. One of the examples of this is changing the name of the church. In the 1990s and even in the 2000s and so forth, the church was actually, you know, really rallying around this idea of being called Mormons. We embraced this, what was formerly a pejorative of LDS um, members, which was Mormons. And we embraced it and we had a campaign that was like, I'm a Mormon. And, you know, it was a big deal. Well, during that time, President Nelson was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, and he strongly objected to this, but he kind of got overrun, right? So we, we get that example, where at one moment we're completely into this whole Mormon thing, and then it changes. We've got the example of the fifth session of conference. What, what's that one all about, Chris? Well, we had this uh, by revelation again, that there wouldn't be a fifth seth- a session of conference, that there wouldn't be a priesthood meeting anymore, since everybody could attend and there was no point to separating the meetings, right? So uh, separate meetings for men and women for priesthood and relief society, right? And then we get more recently, I mean, this is from one month to the next, a new revelation that tells us that there will be a fifth session, it just won't be gendered, and it won't have a theme. And everybody can attend and learn more about the gospel. And then we've got this revelation during President Monson's term as prophet of the church where 
children of gay couples were not allowed to be baptized. Essentially, there was uh, a label slapped on gays that they were apostates. And it would be, you know, uncharitable to teach their children the, the gospel or, or have them baptized while they're in that household because, you know, that would undermine the parents' authority in that home. And that was kind of like the public relations spin on that. Well, that was, that was put out there as a revelation under President Monson. And then when President Nelson comes in, he reverses that policy, and that's also called a revelation, which is interesting because they're contradictory one, one to another. At least that's my perception, and I could be wrong there. But nevertheless, that's kind of what it looks like on the surface. Well, that's where we'll have to go into it a little bit more, right? Another example would be the blacks and the priesthood. We're told first, well, first the blacks had the priesthood early in, in church history. And by the way, we've embraced and shunned being called Mormons off and on throughout church history. You're focusing on just the 90s through now, but we've gone back and forth on that throughout church history. But originally, you have blacks with the priesthood. Then, by revelation, no priesthood for blacks. Later on, by revelation, priesthood for blacks. And finally, I don't know that this was called revelation, but we do have more recently an admission that the, the blacks never should not have had the priesthood. Well, and the big one, along with that uh, official declaration about blacks and the priesthood, is the other official declaration about polygamy, where at one moment it's the, you know, the new and everlasting covenant of plural marriage, and then it's, you know, there's a lot of pressure applied with the anti-bigamy laws of the United States, and then you've got uh, President Wilford Woodruff rescinding that requirement, or I, I guess not, not necessarily making it um, no longer doctrinal, but di- certainly making it you know, in conformity with the United States laws. So making it illegal to practice in this territory and in, within the church. So yeah, those are, those are, I don't want to call them flip-flops, but you know, they look like definitely, flip-flops. they look like flip-flops. I don't care. I'll, I'll let you say that. Um, it walks like a duck. It talks like <laughs> a duck, but then we have to be charitable and we have to, and this is the conversation, right? What is revelation? How does it work? Is it infallible? Is right. it continuing? I mean, what do we mean by continuing, right? Well, I, I think to, to just open up this conversation a little bit, we've given the examples, but now we kind of open it up and you say, look at all churches, all right? Um, if, if there's a church out there or a faith of any kind that doesn't have some kind of mechanism for institutional change, it has to die because people change. Society changes. Cultures change. That's the way I've always put it, Riley. You know, the church is for the people that there are. There, you can't have a church that, that isn't for the people that there are, right? Where everybody's excluded because the church is too good for the people or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, or it's, uh, it's fit to a, a different era. I think that's what right. you're getting at, right? I mean, the, the people that are are us. We live in this society. We don't live in the 1840s. And having a church that fits us, that suits our needs, seems like the charitable thing for a, a loving Heavenly Father to, to make sure we have. And there's something here that I want to bring out, Riley, and that's that on the one hand, we've made it sound like, at least I have, that the church has to change to adapt to the, the changes in the people because I, I think it was implied in what I said that we aren't up to the prior standards. But another way of looking at it that we shouldn't discard, that we should really carefully consider, is the idea that we didn't have it right in the first place, that, that what we thought that was cultural to us is somehow eternal, 
is somehow celestial. And that's not necessarily the case. And so we progress. And I know uh, progress, in some sense, has become a dirty word. But we progress, and our understanding progresses. And we, and on the other hand, progression is, is an idea that's part of eternal progression, right? It's part of our religion. Yeah, and guarding against the possibility that we, we have it wrong sometimes is, is kind of problematic. Um, because we, we insist that there's a lot of credibility given to the prophet. And in fact, it's canonized. I mean, in section 84, it, it talks about this progression. When you follow me, then you follow my servants. If you follow my servants, then you receive this glory. If you receive this glory, you receive the next. And pretty soon you receive all that the Father hath. And so contained within that progression is this idea that you just accept what is given to you uh, by revelation from the prophets. And a lot of people have this, uh, this ethic that says, if you just follow the prophet, you know, you're going to be just fine in the end. Because, you know, and in fact, this was said out, uh, explicitly. So there's this quote that is in the improvement era of June 1945, and that's during the, the presidency of George Albert Smith. Um, who some see kind of more as a fundamentalist in, on some things, orthodox, very. It says, when our leaders speak, the thinking has been done. When they propose a plan, it is God's plan. When they point the way, there is no other which is safe. When they give direction, it should mark the end of controversy. God works in no other way. To think otherwise without immediate repentance may cost one his faith, may destroy his testimony, and leave him a stranger to the kingdom of God. So that's very strong language to that effect that, you know, when, when the prophets speak, you don't have to think. And that, that doctrine that we mentioned earlier of receiving personal confirmation of prophetic revelation is kind of nullified because it's not needed. You don't have to do that because when the prophet speaks, the thinking is done. And so there's some danger to that, that kind of an idea, right? Absolutely. That kind of thinking, I can't help but say this, Riley, that kind of thinking brought us the totalitarianism that followed that time period. Right. Well, and it, it hampers the revelatory prerogative of future prophets to do exactly what we've been discussing early on in this episode, which is to receive revelation for the people that are. Well, okay, not necessarily. I, I was thinking, you know, we could we could still follow the prophet, right? Again, so let's problematize this a little bit. Could it actually cause you to lose your testimony if you didn't think, well, that's what the prophet says, I'm following the prophet? It might. It might also cause you to lose your testimony that you know better than the prophet in some sense. You, you have, through personal revelation, the idea that, no, it's not quite that way. Maybe the timing isn't right. I don't know. You know, this is possible. I think that it's easy to vaunt ourselves and, and it's easy to, to be led astray. And maybe this is the value of having the prophet to follow, right, on the one hand. On the other hand, we might, it, it, I think it's, I just want to say it's okay for us to struggle. I think it's okay to struggle. I mean, look at, the, look at the tradition that Christianity comes out of. In the Jewish tradition, you have struggling with the scriptures. You don't have, thus, thus saith the Lord, amen, when the prophet has spoken, that's the end of the discussion, right? You have, well, what does this mean? Is this right? right? Do you see what I mean? 
Yeah, there's the whole idea of, of wrestling. Yes. And I think we have to do that work. And I think we have to understand that, as we said earlier, that times change. And so because times change and people change, on the one hand, maybe the church has to adapt in such a way that it can be a church where the people that there are can actually fit in on the one hand. And on the other hand, because that's not the only possible answer, there's this idea that maybe those earlier in history had the wrong idea. Maybe it was part of their culture. It's so hard to distinguish between culture and revelation or or to not have culture get in the way of receiving revelation. How about that? Or facilitate revelation. Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting in, too because we have scriptural examples where if a prophet bugs the the Lord enough, the Lord will end up complying with what the prophet's asking him to do and we we have that in the 116 pages, right? Where Joseph keeps on asking, "Can I give these? Can I give these?" and he's like, "Fine, go ahead." And then he loses them, right? Yeah, there's that and then go ahead. And then there's the idea of having a king. God says right. he'll protect the Israelites. He says he will fight their battles for them. And what they really want is to have a king to fight their battles, to go out in front of them and fight their battles for them. And God says, okay, if that's what you want, here's what's going to happen. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, it, again, all these things are very problematic. And it, it just it causes me, anyway, to really kind of ponder and think through this stuff not only about the importance of revelation on an institutional level and how it applies to me, but also how does one go about re- you know, receiving revelation and, and where is the supremacy when it comes to personal revelation if it happens to clash maybe with institutional revelation? Riley, it's probably a good idea at this point to point out what may be the obvious and, and then again may not be, and that is that I think at the bottom of this whole conversation, you and I are both interested in knowing the Lord's will. And we believe that the prophet is interested in knowing the Lord's will. We're just not so sure how good we are at it. Right? Yeah, and that 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 just introduces even more complexity. Oh, good. <laughs> because, you know, you never want to puff yourself up or, or vaunt yourself above another, especially someone 94 years old, you know, President Nelson, who spent his whole life in in service and devotion and discipleship. And, you know, he's worked hard to refine and hone his prophetic gift. Um, but the question for me is always, you know, you brought up this example of blacks in the priesthood. And we run into this a lot with quote unquote revelations, that they are reactive rather than on the forefront, right? And this is a common um, criticism, I guess, of of revelation within our church is that too often we are not leading out for, you know, what eventually will be- become a revelation we would accept as being uh, from the mouth of the Lord. Why isn't that being, why isn't that on the forefront ra- rather than it seems to come more often than not on the back end? And I know I'm just picking on a couple revelations, you know, blacks and the priesthood being one of them. But you know, that is a common criticism. And we, there's, a, there's examples of others where we are on the forefront. You could think about this, this coronavirus thing in the, the home-centered church 
how that came out ahead of time. And people can say the opposite about that, that that was on the forefront. So how, how would you parse those things out? Well, on home-centered church-supported church, church or, well, let's just call it church. Church is supposed to mean gathering, and we do gather as families at home. I have to say, when Stephen R. Covey wrote The Divine Center in the 80s, the idea of church, uh, sorry, of home-centered, church-supported gospel instruction was already old news. It shows up in that book as old news back in, I think, 84. So that's not really new, and, and, and I don't know that it has anything to do with coronavirus necessarily. I think it, sh- I think it already always is or should be the way it works, right? The church is scaffolding for the family is how, is how Stephen R. Covey put it. And then when it comes to blacks and the priesthood, I mean, again, Riley, I think we're just looking at an example where, where what was said to be revelation was just wrong. I don't think it was ever true. I think the church has actually admitted that. Just I for clarity, you're speaking of the original policy to restrict blacks, not give it to them. That's right. Yeah, yeah, the policy to restrict blacks from holding the priesthood after blacks had already held the priesthood in church history that is said to be a revelation has, has finally been admitted not to have been, that it should never have been. And so we have the revelation that says blacks cannot have the priesthood. We have the revelation that says now they can in 1978. And then we have an admission now that it never should have been the case that they should not have had the priesthood, that they always should have had the priesthood, as they did in the the beginning. And so when it comes to these kind of questions, it makes me think, well, what about women? We're so sure that that's different. And when I look at history, and I've spent a lot of time looking at history, Riley, I see that women are not second-class citizens, they're third-class citizens. Because if you go far back enough in history, you're looking at free men, slaves, and women. You see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that. And, and that seems to be kind of the case today, not necessarily slaves. But I mean, if you, if you look at the position of women within the church as compared to a black man, it, it seems like there are less privileges, right? If you look at priesthood as a privilege, holding the priesthood. Sure, and I'm talking about history too, right? I mean, obviously, we don't have that category as a valid category. Slavery was believed to be of God, not only by by the ancients, you know, going back to Aristotle, but even in during chattel slavery in, in the United States, you know, in, in our country, in our country's history with um, with the blacks. And so I think the point you're getting at, though, is that every time we think we have it pinned down, we ought not to be so certain about it, right? I mean, yes. things can change. And the more we get invested in a certain viewpoint, even if it's a revelatory viewpoint, if we don't allow space for change or new revelation, and we've pigeonholed ourselves into a certain viewpoint, we're just as much endangering our testimony as if we ignored everything coming from the prophet. Right. So to be clear, I'm following the prophet. I'm also, and, I, and again, I know that he's, as you put it beautifully, he's honed and continues to hone his prophetic gift, and yet I'm also honing my own prophetic gift, and I'm also understanding, and this is the point of this conversation, right, is that you and I have thought about this enough to say, and to look at these problematic examples enough to say, 
we're learning how to receive revelation. Revelation is continuing because we continue to learn how to receive revelation. We don't have the final answer. Yeah, there's there's a couple scriptures that, you know, refer to this idea that if it's from the mouth of a prophet, it's from the mouth of God. And again, we should we should be careful with that, you know. Maybe we we shouldn't put verbatim in front of that, you know. <laughs> Maybe we should just think, look, this this very well may be the source of that revelation, but we we can't pretend there isn't a filter in between. We know for a it's, fact that Doctrine and Covenants, for instance, is in the voice of Joseph. I mean, that's how he wrote. That's how he spoke. And and when you see a revelation that is preceded by, you know, thus saith the Lord, and then it follows in Joseph's voice, we have to know that there's some of Joseph coming through in that, right? Absolutely. You know, I, I don't know that I've brought this up on in connection with this podcast. I have in Come Follow Me study group, you know, the idea that there's this debate, right? Some look at the Book of Mormon and see a 19th century text and say it, it can't be an ancient text because it looks like a 19th century text and it has issues in it that are 19th century issues. All of the theological debates of, of its day are included in some sense and answered in some sense. Mm-hmm. Maybe I shouldn't say all, but many of those debates and those issues are included and answered. Or, or, and to me, that's not the only way to think about it. If you have an ancient text that the the prophet who is translating it by the gift and power of God cannot actually read, and we don't believe that he's being dictated the text, a translation that is, then whatever he receives is received according to his own understanding, in his own context, and in his own frame of mind and way of thinking. And so, of course, it looks 19th century. He's a 19th century prophet. Yeah, and because of that, there's an inherent filter, right? There's an it goes through the filter, and what we get is is these. You don't want to say censored version, but you know it's it's a filtered version. It comes through a medium, and that medium is the prophet. And so, while we might want to give deference to those words, we certainly still have to leave space for the possibility that the policies that come out of that can change. And again, for me, the point of this, I think, for, for this conversation, for when I say this conversation, I'm not thinking of this episode of our podcast, but the, the whole conversation that we're having through this podcast is that as, as contemplatives, that we have to be open, continually polishing the mirror, that is the, the mirror of the heart, so that it can accurately reflect the, the true nature of God. Mm-hmm. Again, when I think about there aren't just 19th century prophets, we have ancient prophets in the Old Testament, and the way they saw God as their tribal warrior God, for example, I don't think accurately reflects the true nature of God. And yet God was working with them. I see God as, as saying, guys, I'm not your warrior God. Because the idea was every tribe had, had its own warrior God, and, and my God's going to beat up your God. And so when they went to war, they knew that, I mean, you can see this in the Bible, you can see it in the Iliad. This is an ancient way of thinking. We don't think this way. And if we, and if we look at the Bible and we don't see this problem that we're, that we're talking about here, the elephant in the room, so to speak, then we can come away with the wrong idea about who God is and how God works. And we can do that in the Old Testament and we can do that in 
the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, and in whatever is coming from the pulpit today, it's complicated. We have to be, yeah, we have to be open to receiving continuing revelation. And again, as you've said, we, we can't think that we have the final answer. We can't pigeonhole ourselves. We can't allow ourselves to be backed into a corner by any level of revelation that can be superseded by continuing. This is the idea of continuing revelation, that it's continuous. Well, and ironically, if we apply the first principle of the gospel, which is faith, to this equation, we come to the understanding that having faith means not having certainty, as we've said in a prior episode. So by pretending that we know the final answer and that we have all the revelation, we're essentially saying, just like a lot of anti-Mormons do, that the canon is closed. Well, it's not. The, The windows of heaven are still open. And so we're going to have faith that new truths will be revealed continually. And this, I mean, revelation means unveiling. And the unveiling is a process that takes time. And, you know, it may not happen in just our generation or during just our lifetime. And so we have to allow space for that, too, that as we learn from each prior generation, that historically all society is moving maybe closer to the ideal of God rather than farther away. We don't know. So that's why revelation is so important, not only for an institutional level, but for us individually. So let's talk about a little uh, how we might start to facilitate the process of revelation for ourselves. Before we switch gears, though, I'd like to say something about what you just said. You know, the, the idea that you bring up that we might actually be moving closer as a society, as a people, as a as a as human beings to the true nature of God and to our own true nature as a society, the, that possibility is real. Absolutely. And, and it can be, and, and, and that's all of us. That's not just us as members of the church. That's all of society. That's all of humankind. And we can't discount that. There's a place for conservatism. Conservatism is useful. And yet, we have to be open to the other possibility at the same right. time. You know, there's a, there's a quote from the King Follett discourse that comes to my mind. It is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God. This is Joseph Smith in the King Follett sermon. As you were talking about the first principle of the gospel being faith, I remembered Joseph Smith's words, it is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God. And I don't know whether what faith is the first principle or this is the first principle or they're both the first principle, but the point is it does take faith and and it is god in in whom we our faith resides right our faith is in god and we have to know we have to really try to understand who god is and what god's will is and i just think that we've shown from our, in our discussion from the old testament through the doctrine and covenants and today that that's an ongoing struggle to learn to understand who God is and what God expects of us. And what you're highlighting is really the reason behind needing revelation, even today. Because, you know, certainty is what pins us down to thinking we have it all, we know it all. And there are countless examples that prove we don't know it all, we don't have it all. And to that point about progressing possibly towards God, Look at the meta-examples. 
the meta examples, right? I mean, there's obviously very, like the individual or anecdotal examples, plenty of those that we're straying farther and farther away from God. But there's meta examples that show that we're, we're getting closer to the ideal in, in terms of, you know, health outcomes, mortality rates, that kind of stuff. Um, peace. Uh, peace. Yeah, exactly. Despite but, all the wars and rumors of wars. Right. We, yeah, we, brutality. We actually have right. less war, less crime. We see more of it, social media, 24-hour news cycle, right? But there's actually less. And, and this has been shown, right? This has been demonstrated. All right, so revelation is kind of a two-way operation. It's this drawing back of the veil, but I think the hand that is pulling the veil is, is a hand on each side, metaphorically speaking. I love that image. You know, and we have to want it. Heavenly Father... God certainly wants to reveal it, but it requires the, the pulling back of this metaphorical veil. And then to receive it is another thing. Like we, we may want it and we may reach up and pull back that veil, but then when we see it, we're like, oh, never mind. I don't want that. <laughs> you know, and so there's two parts to it. Or, or we may not even get that far, right? Maybe, maybe we, we can't actually see it because we already know we don't want that. We, we already think we have the right answer according to our culture, according to our conservatism, according to whatever Bruce R. McConkie said back when he said what he said, whatever was said in 1945, the addition or summation of all of it. You see what I mean? All these things can get in the way. No, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, because we can say we're very receptive and open to the idea of revelation, but maybe because of our certainty of certain things, we've already closed off our ability to receive the revelation that would come from God. What we really want is confirmation bias. And we Confirm- don't even realize it. We, we want confirmation, not confirmation bias. We want confirmation of the things we think we already know. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, you know, I, I mentioned receptivity. That's a very divine feminine quality. And I love the example that's given in the scriptures of Mary when it's announced to her that, you know, she will have this this Messiah, the Savior of the world, will be born to her. And her response to this revelation from an angel is, be it unto me according to thy word. I love that. Which is really different from Sarah, who says something like, how can that be? I'm too old to have a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where Mary's not even married. You know, she's betrothed. Yeah. So she doesn't, she doesn't come right out and say, well, I'm not married yet. She, she doesn't throw out all these qualifiers. She just says, be it unto me according to thy word. And if we approach God with that same attitude of receiving revelation, the humility and meekness that is apparent there, you would think would be apparent to God as well. Of course. What a beautiful example, the example of Mary. And that is a divine feminine attribute. You know, as I study Sufism, in my academic work, you know, I came, I came to an understanding, you know, for, for those not familiar with Sufi poetry, it's love poetry. And there's talk of wine and love and intoxication, whether it be with wine or with love. And actually, the, the two are really one and the same. And for Muslims, drinking is, as, is prohibited as it is for, for Mormons, you know, for Latter-day Saints. And yet there's all this talk of drinking wine and intoxication and love. And, and it turns out that the lover is God and that the wine and the intoxication are metaphorical. 
And so when you read Sufi poetry like Rumi, Rumi's the best-selling poet in America today, 13th century Persian Sufi, Muslim uh, mystic, best-selling poet in America today. You know, this is what's going on. And, and I, I understood that, and yet I was missing such a big piece. And it came to me listening to a, an interview on uh, Oprah. It was, a, it was an Oprah Winfrey interview of Llewellyn Von Lee, who's an American Sufi, who opened, opened up for me the possibility of really understanding what's going on in this poetry, in this love poetry. Because I made the mistake as, as a male to think that, not that I was thinking necessarily of God as female, the point is I wasn't thinking about it. And so uh, Llewellyn Von Lee points out that when we are in the relationship with God, we are in that passive receptive place where we're waiting for God to come to us. Right? We're waiting for the beloved to come to us whenever he wants to. Do you see what I mean? And so and that's you see very that much... represented in Christ. How so? What do you mean? He, he seems to always reflect that divine feminine attribute of receptivity. In terms of his, his faith, his prayers, it's always be it according to thy will. You know, that's when right. he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's like, I see what you take mean. this cup from me. And, and yet he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. Same, same type of idea. Yes. And we're not talking about gender roles here, by the way. Maybe that's an easy way to identify with this. We're talking about archetypal images. And there is a subtle distinction there. Yeah, I think there's a confluence for, for much of it. I mean, w the reason why sure. we say it's divine feminine is because they ring true to us as being somewhat divine qual or feminine qualities. And same with divine masculine of, you know, power, authority, order, that kind of stuff. Um, but within any male or female human, we can incorporate these divine feminine or masculine attributes. And as whole human beings, as perfect human beings, that is, that's what it looks like, right? That's, yeah. that's the point, is to incorporate all of these archetypal images completely and, and integrate all of them. Perfectly. Someday when we think of the right guest, we're going to do an episode on this. <laughs> That's a good idea. On divine feminine and divine masculine. So many times revelation can come as a result of like tuning into it. And one of the things that in the contemplative mindset we try to do is put ourselves in circumstances or settings where we will be tuned in to possible revelation. Not that it absolutely will come, but that it's, it's facilitated. You know what that reminds me of, Riley? There's Elizabeth Gilbert's TED Talk on, on the genius. And nowadays we think of a, a genius as a person. Liz Gilbert points out that in Roman times, a genius, and by the way, this is the same idea that's related to the Arabic jinn and, and you know, mm -hmm. so genie is related in some sense. And it goes all the way back to the idea of the daimon, which becomes demon, but a daimon can be good or bad. And it's this companion that you have. You could think of it like as your conscious. And so she points out that as a writer, it's one's job to sit down in front of the whatever it is you're working with, pencil and paper, pen and paper, your laptop, whatever, every day to show up. to. And the genius may or may not show up because the genius is not, you're not the genius. The genius is something that comes to you. 
And so we have to be receptive. We have to be open. We have to be ready and waiting to receive the revelation. That's why Lectio Divina, that's why prayer, that's why meditation, that's why all of these contemplative practices, silence, stillness, all of it. I love that you're bringing those out because I actually wanted to go through kind of an abbreviated list of some, some moments that you can create that would put you in that contemplative mindset of awareness and help facilitate the revelatory experience. So you mentioned uh, meditation, you mentioned uh, Lectio Divina, which you know incorporates that divine reading and studying of Scripture along with prayer and meditation. We just did an episode on journaling. You know That can certainly facilitate revelatory experience. A walk in the woods. Yeah, asking questions connection down as well yeah it's so important to ask questions connecting yourself with nature. in sacred spaces natural or man-made sacred time with sacred space comes sacred time right mm-hmm. bringing those two together which by the look, way the sacred time is the now it's always the now right it's about presence mm-hmm. and when you look at sort of the the antithesis of some of these things we've brought up you have uh, distraction, obfuscation, anxiety, busy environments with a lot going on. Not that those things don't have their place. Obviously, you know, being in a busy environment is usually not a choice. A lot of times we just have crap to do. But I think that a lot of these revelatory experiences would be better facilitated in in solitude or peace or quiet. Um, and again, these are not exclusionary or exclusive, but Putting yourself in that contemplative mindset of awareness is, I think, key to being receptive to revelation. Isn't it interesting, Riley, how we get inspiration in the shower? <laughs> I think it's all about what you're talking about, right? Yeah. It's because we don't have the phone, and, and I know some do, right? So now even in the shower, right? Oh, it's waterproof. Or I can play the music out loud from the bathroom counter, right? Right. But oftentimes, you know, we go into the shower and nobody's talking to us. The TV is not there. The, the phone is not there. And we're inspired. The temperature is where you want it. You have white noise from the shower and the fan, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a perfect so place. A lot it's, of things are blocked out. It's not surprising at all. So yeah. we can create those moments. I mean, you can take more showers if that's what it takes or find another way to create that experience of of. Uh, putting yourself in that sacred space and time where you can be open and receptive to revelation. So I want to talk about another, uh, I guess it's a principle, um, that happens frequently or an occurrence that happens frequently when you're putting yourself in this contemplative mindset and how that may be or maybe not be related to, to revelation, and that is this idea or principle of synchronicity. We've talked about it before on prior episodes. Carl Jung kind of popularized this idea. But synchronicity is like a confluence of events that lead multiple people to a conclusion or, or the events themselves lead a person to a conclusion. How, how would you put it? Is that adequate? Yeah, synchronicity is this idea of, of the non-causal dimension of human experience, right? That maybe something comes up for me and because somebody says something and then I read about it somewhere else and then somebody else brings it up and you think, why is this happening? There's this, this confluence of events that are connected but non-causally. 
And there's a reason these things happen. And we have to be open to this experience. This is something, again, that, as you said, that Carl Jung pointed out to us. And it can be kind of a tool for calling our awareness to something that we need to be aware of, right? It's a personal revelatory experience. And I always pay attention. If, you know, if it happens twice, I'm looking for that third time. And then I know this is something I have to pay attention to. You know, I'm already paying attention at at the second time. That's kind of your metaphorical burning in the bosom then, that that third time that you're looking for. Absolutely. Yeah. By the second time, I'm already tuned in. I've got my antenna up. I'm looking for that third time. And there it is. And man, I've got to pay attention to this, right? I've got to to spend some time on this. I've got to go into it. I've got to focus on it. Another thing that occurs to me is time, meaning that we have to realize that if this is an ongoing process, that we, we say, we talk about it in terms of we'll receive the revelation in the Lord's time. We'll get answers in the Lord's time. I think that's true. And, and what, what I mean by that is that we have to be able, to, we have to be willing to put in the time. And that may take, and it's something that we do together too. I think another thing that, you, that comes out at least when we think about synchronicity is that just as human experience is a, is a group experience, we're all having this human experience together. Thinking, in some sense, is a, is a group experience too. And revelation, receiving revelation is also. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why when, we receive, when the prophet receives revelation, we are to receive revelation also. We're supposed to look for that, right? We're looking for confirmation of the revelation, not just to do as in 1945 and say, well, the prophet has said so, that's it, I don't have to think about this, right? But to actually look for confirmation of that revelation. And we may or may not receive it. And my main point here in talking about time is that we may not receive it now. We may have to really put in the effort. I think we're so used to things coming so quickly and easily. We, we don't, this takes mastery. Right? It takes mastery. It takes effort. It takes continuous long-term effort to, as you put it earlier, to hone our prophetic gift. Yeah, and, and we're all supposed to work on that prophetic gift. It, we, we don't have to assume that the prophet is the only one that receives prophecy. This is perhaps a unique aspect to uh, the LDS Church, is that everyone is entitled to personal revelation. And if that's the case, those who seek it will have more of it. And we also, it also points out that we shouldn't assume that the prophet is, has fully and completely developed his own prophetic gift. And we're all in this together. And we're all, all of us who have the intention of discovering God's will, who are willing to do the work, can and have and will continue to receive revelation that will bring us closer to God, line upon line, precept upon precept. Within the church, you know, at some point, uh, I guess it was after Brigham Young, the, the senior apostle just became the prophet of the church. I mean, and obviously there's common consent to that and whatever, but it, it became about seniority rather than a demonstration of prophetic gift. And I'm not saying that those people don't have that or that it isn't the intent of the Lord to have the senior apostle be the prophet or even that someone who develops it over that much time and becomes a senior apostle by virtue of years isn't better at it. I'm not implying any of those things. All I'm saying is the prophet, quote unquote, is really the president of the church first. I mean, that's their position has to do with seniority. And whether they've 
taken the time and put in the effort to develop the prophetic gift is, is a separate question. It may overlap. There may be a tremendous amount of overlap there, but they are separate. Um, they are separate in their treatment there. You've, have, you've got a president of the church and you've got a prophet. And how they exercise in that calling and position and how well they magnify that calling is probably more dependent on the latter than the former. And you've already pointed out that, that, and I think this is this bears repeating because I'm not sure that we're always really fully aware of this, and especially when when we're younger, right? That there's something to lived experience, and the longer you've lived, the more experience you have, and that does count for a lot, maybe a lot more than we're willing to give it credit. And yet, at the same time, to to keep you know problematizing the issue. There is, and, and I think there has to be a tension between the two. There is this, this idealism in youth, right? And I think, you know, someone who's, who's come up before in the podcast, and, and that's Jordan Peterson, you know, has, has pointed out that we need to have a conversation, right? And again, I think, I think of this as a group activity, us as saints, the whole church, the, the whole of humanity. We're in this conversation where we have to have the two elements bumping into each other and bringing it back again to the idea of the struggle, of the wrestling in the, in the Jewish tradition that our Christian tradition comes out of. We need that. And so we have to be open to the other side, yeah, whichever side we're on. There's, there's always, like you say, this tension between you know, trying to steady the ark or steer the ship versus just let the, the captain have his helm, you know what I mean? So I, I totally understand that, that tension you're speaking of, but I also think we're somewhat negligent if we just hand over, hand over the helm completely and trust that wherever we crash land is going to be exactly where we need to be. Um, giving the captain some input collectively or even individually, I mean, I don't see anything wrong with that whatsoever. Well, that's, Again, not trying to steer the ship or steady the ark, but why not a little input? Yeah, well, that's what I'm getting at, right? That it's a group activity, that we're all in this together. We're all in it to keep the metaphor of the ship. We're all in this ship together. And we, all of us, have a say. And it may, that, it may not appear that way. And by the way, this is, you can take this as permission to think of it that way. Right. I mean, sometimes I run into people where, well, but the, uh, but that's not allowed or that's not the way it's taught. And I think, really, I don't, where is it said that you don't have a say? Where is it said we are all to receive revelation? And we've, and we've, you and I, Riley, we've pointed out, you know, we, when looking at section 76 and also as I've, as I recorded a sec, uh, podcast on section 76 with Ben for the Come Follow Me podcast from Latter-day Peace Studies also. This idea that we should be producing scripture, we should be receiving revelation and producing scripture that what Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were showing us in section 76 is how to have an experience of receiving revelation. And yeah, in that fact, we, they, and that gave us, take... they gave us that meta pattern, right? I mean, they were yes. specifically studying in the New Testament, and they tell us which verse they were studying that prompted this revelation that they received in 76. That's a pattern for us to follow. And the scriptures aren't the final answer. You know, they're, they're the jumping off point. They're the beginning. We read the scriptures 
to have the, the to put it's one of those activities that we do to put us in the place to be open to receiving revelation. And yes, they gave us an example of how to do that. So where do we go from here for for those listening and for you and I? What do we do with revelation now that we've described what it is and you know how to receive it possibly? Then what? To this idea of the scriptures not being the the end but the beginning of revelation. I have a quote from Dallin H. Oaks. He said the scriptures are not the ultimate source of knowledge but what precedes the ultimate source. The ultimate knowledge comes by revelation. Hmm. That reminds me of the the Bible dictionary uh, definition, which I find to be very instructive and helpful. Jump in there real quick. Says, continuous revelation through the Holy Ghost or by other means, such as visions, dreams, or visitations, makes possible daily guidance along true paths and leads the faithful soul to complete an eternal salvation in the celestial kingdom. The principle of gaining knowledge by revelation is the principle of salvation. It is the making known of divine truth by communication with the heavens, and consists not only of revelation of the plan of salvation to the Lord's prophets, but also a confirmation in the hearts of the believers that the revelations are true. You know what stood out to me there is paths. It wasn't singular path it was paths mm-hmm. and that reminds me of the quote from from rumi that i love to quote which is there are as many paths to god as there are people on earth and i remember also a conversation i heard uh, between my wife and a friend and i remember my wife saying that just as god trusts her to find her own path back to god she trusts her children to find their own path and at the same time she trusts in god she knows that that they are Christ's, and that he is God's. And just as he trusts us, she trusts them. And her interlocutor's reply was, you're a good mom, Alyssa. And I had to agree. Hmm. We, we've very much tried to empower our children to make decisions on their, about their life on their own and informed, of course, by their upbringing and, and whatnot. But uh, I love that. That's great. You know, the more we can teach them truth and let them govern themselves and utilize this principle of revelation that we've taught them to believe in, the the better I think it'll be for them and us. And they may get it wrong. Well, they just will. As we, just as we've shown even the prophets have. Right. And yet, yeah, f- that's not the end of the story, right? Revelation right. It's, continues. It's a foregone conclusion. We're all going to get some things wrong. And that's why revelation is such a beautiful principle in the first place, because it allows us to, you know, retool and get new directions and figure out a better, better way to go. We can always repent. We can always turn back to the source. And, and we don't have to have done anything wrong. We could have gotten something wrong, but that doesn't mean we did something wrong necessarily. But we can turn back to the source, and that's what I'm going to call repentance, and ask again. Even when we receive revelation, I remember Elder, Elder Richard Z. Scott telling us we should always ask again, is there more? And write it down and act on it, of course, right? Because otherwise, why, why give us more? If we're not even taking what we've been given and doing something with it, why give us more? So that's another principle, right? Well, is and being similarly, willing to act on what we receive. 
Similarly, I heard Jeffrey R. Holland talk about how many people kind of misunderstand how revelation works. A lot of times it is trying to interpret guidance as much as it's acting upon guidance. So we receive some kind of revelation, what we perceive to be a revelation. We act upon it, find out it takes us down the wrong road, and then we go back to the source and say, well, that didn't work out. Where should we go now? And it's almost like, okay, well, first we're exercising faith, number one. And two, we're doing the best we can. And sometimes we get it wrong, but the comforting thing is we can go back to the source and try again. That's teaching I love us that example. I love that example. It shows you how we can get it wrong and yet not be wrong. Because if we're staying in the game, right, if we're actually continually turning back to the Lord and continually receiving revelation, we're moving forward. Right. Even if, Even it's if a we two take steps, one step. Right, exactly. Even if we take one step forward and two steps back, yeah. Great yeah. minds think alike, Riley. There you go, synchronicity again. Yeah. Well, I, I think that uh, we've, we've come to some good understanding about what revelation is, how we might receive it. And I think it's helped me at least to resolve some of these complexities and, and maybe not even fully resolve, but just be okay with the complexity and, and just live in that state of um, you know, perplexity where it's okay to have a little wonder. Speaking of wonder, you had a quote from Goethe that I you do. read pre-show, and I would love for you to read that, because I think that's maybe a good ending point for us. It's a perfect quote to end with. Yeah, let me share that quote. And by the way, if we haven't answered all the questions, and, and if you're not okay with wonder, and hopefully you'll be inspired by this quote from Goethe to be okay with wonder, to realize that that, that really is it, then at least, hopefully we've at least raised some questions for you to ponder. Here's what Goethe said. The highest to which man can attain is wonder, and if the prime phenomenon makes him wonder, let him be content. Nothing higher can it give him, and nothing further should he seek for behind it. Here is the limit. O'Reilly, do you have anything to add? No, I love where that leaves me. Just that idea of of living and being in that sense of wonder is uh, it, it aligns with me. I mean, it, the contemplative mindset is one that is okay with perplexity, and in that perplexity, we're humble and meek enough to understand that we we can't know everything, but that's okay. Nevertheless, we should still pursue that oneness with you know, the mind and will of God, which is really the core of Revelation. Amen and amen. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. See you next week.